0: From a fruit picker in the south of Tasmania who falsely claimed he killed Nancy, to a strange red jacket hidden on the beach after Victoria's murder, these two cold cases have led to plenty of dead ends and false leads. I'm Amber Wilson and this is Gone Girls, a five-episode podcast series from the Mercury looking into the Tasmanian cold case mysteries of Victoria Cafaso and Nancy Grunwald. While I've been on the trail of Victoria's murder and Nancy's disappearance, I've heard and read what could only be described as a dazzling array of red herrings, weird ideas and theories about what happened to the two women that at first seemed solid, but have just never really stacked up. According to old media reports, even the home of Martin Bryant, the gunman who killed 35 and wounded 19 at Port Arthur in 1996, was searched after he was arrested for the massacre. They were trying to find if Bryant had any of Nancy or Victoria's possessions. Detective Inspector Graham Hickey confirmed he wasn't a suspect, but perhaps worth investigating given Bryant was a surfy who'd spent time on the East Coast. Retired Detective Bob Code, one of the head police officers who worked on both Nancy's and Victoria's cases, told me a strange story about a just smoking guy in Tasmania's Huon Valley district whose tall stories around the campfire got the better of him.
1: Other detectives and myself, we travelled the state speaking to people, making inquiries. And in all that time, we had really just information coming in that you get all, all sorts of information from all sorts of people. But they only we had one positive, bit of, well, it was positive at the time that um, a fellow down the Ewan area of Tasmania, fruit picker, um, around a campfire and smoking hoonah, um, stated that to the, these people at the orchard at Castle Forbes Bay that he had killed this girl on the east coast.
0: Which one? Na- Victoria?
1: No, Nancy.
0: Nancy, but but he he claimed that he murdered her, but but you think he's smoking drugs? Yeah. Okay, so he was. he's delusional? Uh, we
1: we found him. <laughs> uh, uh, we eventually located that person at at Gatton, just down from Toowoomba. We went through an interrogation process. And then a, 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 an interview, a recorded interview process that eliminated him from, from the inquiry.
0: Why would you say that you would murdered someone?
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. All I can say is that, that he was very sorry that he did.
0: Nancy's missing persons case has been tricky because none of her belongings have ever been found despite the area near where she was last seen having been extensively and repeatedly searched. Specifically, the red bicycle that she was travelling on from St Helens to Hobart has never been located, despite exhaustive efforts over the years and two attempts to excavate the Bishno tip. Victoria's murder case is vastly different. Not only did police have a body, they also had a myriad of clues, including that some of her belongings and even, horribly, a few of her teeth, had disappeared from the crime scene. Police also made a cast of a footprint in the sand that was found near her body. But unfortunately, the crime scene was disturbed by the initial uniform police who moved her body. In fact, they made quite a few mistakes that have been widely criticised over the years, including by the coroner. These include the fact that the area wasn't cordoned off, and that the crime scene was contaminated with foreign objects like the tarpaulin that was brought in to cover her body. And a different set of footprints wasn't cast at all before they disappeared in the wind. A number of key pieces of evidence and missing objects in Victoria's case have also thrown the case off track. For instance, Victoria was said to be wearing a T-shirt when she was murdered that had a wolf on it with piercing eyes and that this had gone missing. Police made a public appeal for the wolf T-shirt, but at the 2005 inquest, Coroner Don Jones said there was no evidence she'd been wearing such a piece of clothing at all. Melanie Calvert is an author who has written a book on both Victoria and Nancy's cases. She's become something of an unintentional expert, with readers regularly reaching out to feed her clues. Melanie tells me that sometimes she thinks there are just too many red herrings, In these stories, I'd probably
2: say uh, about every three to six months or so, I have someone contact me, um, or I hear something else. Because now I've become a bit of a sounding board, and you know, some someone might contact me and say, "Oh, you really need to go and um, get in contact with this person because they know something about it." So uh, there's always seems to be little, uh, little more hints of information. but, you know, really trying to find something that's got the, the evidence that we need um, to, to make it stick is another matter entirely.
0: Melanie says people tell her memories they had from the day of Victoria's death, including what could have been potential sightings of the killer.
2: I spoke to a gentleman who had seen a person sitting by the road on that, the day of... Um, Victoria's murder, who was sitting there looking strange, uh, wiping off a knife, sitting down on the side of the road. He actually said that he'd tried to speak to the police, but they didn't seem very interested in talking to him. Um, so I was able to go and meet with him and at least have a chat. And, uh, you know, it was certainly something that he thought was very strange and he was able to describe to me that person and uh, their appearance. Um, So sometimes it's good to have note of some of these things in case they become more important later because if anything um, delves into the, uh, you know, really needing some police um, attention, I always go to the police and I have previously been in contact with... uh, some of the police who were previously on the on the case even like who are retired now um, as well as talking to some um, current police Uh, i probably can't say all the things that i'd like to say because um, obviously some things are told to me in confidence um, other than uh you know i certainly do take anything to the police that, that needs to be taken to the police
0: Melanie and I spoke about perhaps one of the strangest false leads in the Victoria Cafaso case, the red jacket. In January 2004, almost a decade after Victoria's murder, a red jacket was found on Beaumaris Beach by two campers after one of them had a vision of a woman's face. In the scrub at Diana's Basin, not far from the murder site, the pair found a mound of sand that looked like it had been freshly dug which the campus said looked like a grave. Nearby was a rolled up piece of roofing tin containing a red jacket with strands of long blonde hair and labelled with the name of a local girl, the daughter of one of the key people of interest at the time. Testing found the jacket also contained traces of blood. The media interest was huge, Was this the piece of evidence that would finally track down Victoria's killer? To answer that question, simply no. Despite extensive forensic analysis, there was nothing to link the jacket with Victoria's murder. There was no evidence it belonged to or had ever been worn by the girls whose name it contained. Coroner Don Jones was livid when he mentioned the planted jacket, furious that time wasters would distract investigators from their work and hoping that whoever was responsible would be charged. Something both Bob and Melanie tell me is about the amount of strange and fantastic accounts both cases have attracted over the years. Apparently people have sat on Beaumaris Beach and meditated until visions of what happened dawned upon them. Melanie is fairly continuously contacted by people who've conducted seances and claim to have Information from beyond. What is it about these two cases that has attracted such a widespread, long term, and sometimes even bizarre fascination? Melanie tells me she visited Beau Morris to find out for herself.
2: Uh, Well, community wise, I mean, you know, you look at the town, it's a beautiful little tidy town, it's very picturesque, the beach is beautiful, Um, but I really did find a sort of a creepy um, feeling on the beach and also at that. um, the nearby place, uh, Diana's Basin, which is where those other people had found um, the buried jacket. Um, I thought it was a very strange feeling there and I really did have a sense that something had happened there.
0: Melanie also tells me that Victoria's death had a profound impact on a lot of people, so big, in fact, that the terrible event acted as a catalyst for change in their own lives.
2: Obviously, it's it's fractured that community, um... I've spoken to people who said their lives changed on the day of Victoria's murder because a life that was going to head in this direction and that is now going to go in another direction um, just due to that trauma.
0: Kim Stephen, the detective inspector currently responsible for the case, also has a theory about why Nancy and Victoria's cases have led to so much fascination and so much speculation.
1: The two incidents in particular, I think, hit it. The what Tasmania we, we consider ourselves to be one of the safest places in the world, and i, I, I still you know firmly believe that. that's why I live here and I, that's why my family live here. Um, but the idyllic east coast, I think you said earlier, you've been down there the last couple of days, and you know it's a, it's a beautiful place, and it, it certainly broke the serenity of of that area for both young ladies, and uh, you know, they've come from the other side of the world to, to Tasmania, you know, for various reasons, just to have, have a break.
0: So a life-changing catalyst, the shattering of a sense of safety on a beautiful and sleepy coastline, and a sense of something not being quite right, they're all certainly good arguments about why we've had so much interest and so many dead ends in these cold cases. But perhaps one of the main difficulties in Victoria's case was the sheer number of persons of interest. As Kim tells me, police initially investigated more than 300 people. I can only imagine that the amount of work required and that the amount of dead ends would have only frustrated efforts to solve the case. The sheer volume of suspects, a bungled crime scene, red herrings, and the world's response to a paradise lost may just have led to decades' worth of mythical and unsubstantiated theories. But what I find saddest about all these detours and distractions is that they've taken effort and attention away from solving Victoria and Nancy's cases. We owe it to them to solve their cases, so we can put them to rest properly, and we owe it to their families, as well as that peaceful seaside community that was hurt so badly by their deaths. Thank you for listening to the Mercury's podcast series, Gone Girls, narrated by Amber Wilson, recorded by Luke Bowden, and edited by Russell Petterwood.